one. It's a lovely lift now and again to celebrate and say, this is what happened. Thank you, God. One. I became really, really inspired and relaxed at the same time with the fact that all areas of my life could belong together. One. One. The One Voice Podcast, because we're all the same. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. This episode is most certainly a history lesson. Maybe not in the way LP Hartley intended, but what a fascinating passage through time it promises to be. As that neighbour and great friend of Kingsthorpe Methodist Church, Kingsthorpe Baptist Church, stands on the verge of its 200th anniversary. We have that story. Coffee Time Chat dives into the June edition and underscores an event or a piece of news that we think you'll like and experiencing the King's coronation from the Reverend Helen Cameron's perspective. She was part of the blessing in Westminster Abbey and takes you behind the scenes. The One Voice Podcast. First, Kingsthorpe Baptist Church. It's not just home sometimes to the Methodist Church, nor is it merely a friend. It has a rich fascinating history of its own and is about to mark its double century. I spoke to Catherine Bruce and she set out why 2023 is a very important year for it. We're celebrating our 200 years of being formed. Um, We were formed, well, some would say the 30th of March 1823, some would say the 1st of April 1823. There's different records. Um, but we decided we wanted to celebrate that because that's quite a, an achievement to still be around in Kingsthorpe after all that time. We are, of course, a non-conformist denomination. And that, and I'm going to give you some dates now in history, which I hope are correct. So in 1534, we had the English Reformation when um, the Catholic Church, well, was, was kind of closed and the Church of England came in and time moved on. And there were quite a few people around the country who weren't necessarily happy with the the Protestant alternative um, and became nonconformists. And lots of there's lots of history around that. But in 1689, an important date was the Toleration Act, and that meant that there was a toleration of division within the church, and nonconformists were allowed to have their own place of worship and their own preachers. Anyone that was a member of a nonconformist church still had to make an allegiance to the monarchy. Time moved on, and in Kingsthorpe between 1702 and 1826, there's various recordings of names associated with nonconformist meetings within this Kingsthorpe area at different houses. And also Philip Doddridge was involved and came and preached here, somewhere in this area around High Street in Kingsthorpe, and actually upset the local curate at the time at Kingsthorpe Church just down the road. And obviously Philip Doddridge went on to do great things within the nonconformist movement. From 1787 onwards, there were several me- meeting houses registered um, for Protestant dissenters. I assume they were all Baptists, but I'm not entirely sure. And they would have been submitted to the Bishop of Peterborough so that they were all authorised and there was nothing untoward going on. And we were supported a lot um, at Kingsthorpe by the Baptist Church, known as College Lane then, which obviously became College Street, now sadly no longer there as a Baptist church. And again, time moved on. And in 1808, the dissenters, as they as we are called or were called then um, at Kingsop, were were doing 
their own bit of dissenting in that they weren't very happy with the preachers that were at um, College Lane at that time and being supplied to come and, and preach on a Sunday. They got their own preachers and they had a couple of pastors that came and, and sort of led the church. But things went a bit awry. They'd set up a Sunday school in 1813 and for a while that was really successful. But it kind of, it diminished a little bit. And by the time we got to January 1823, um, a letter of appeal was sent to College Lane for some advice and some spiritual guidance. And their advice was to stop the preaching services on a Sunday and to just concentrate on the Sunday school and to have a lecture on a Sunday evening, but not any morning worship and then a midweek prayer meeting. Apparently, according to the history books, this advice wasn't really acceptable. So on the 30th of March, 1823, 18 people, along with their pastor, who was a Mr. Hewitt at the time, were baptised at the church at Moulton, so Carey in Moulton. And on the 1st of April, those eight people had their first service in this area, in High Street, somewhere in Kingsthorpe. And then on the 11th of July of 1823, seven more people who were already members of College Lane wrote a letter to their church and asked for dismissal of their membership um, from, from there to Kingsford Baptist. Now, for whatever reason, it took three and a half years before a reply, a favourable reply, was received back from College Lane. And then I guess the rest is kind of history because they then, the church grew and by 1835 they'd purchased a, pot of, a plot of land, which is this building here in High Street, and they built this church. You're working towards an exhibition, the details of which we'll, we'll come to in a minute. Why did you become involved in it and how are you involved? What, what's your role in the exhibition that's forthcoming, Catherine? Well, I've been coming um, to this church all of my life since a baby. I won't tell you what year that was, but it was a little while ago. <laughs> so I've seen some of this history. I do remember, I wasn't very old, but I do remember when the 150th anniversary was, you know, in 1973 that was. So, you know, I remember that and thinking, wow, that's, you know, that's really exciting. So I guess it's something that I want to try and replicate. Um, it is a good thing that we've, and a brilliant thing that we've been here all that time. So the church as a whole, I'm, I'm a deacon and I'm the secretary of the church. So the church as a whole at one of our church meetings last year, you know, noted the fact that we were going to be celebrating 200 years. And what could we do to do that? So that's why we've we came up with a bit of a plan of things to do. And we thought it would be nice to open the church, which it will be on Saturday, the 24th of June. So we're going to have an exhibition of some of the church records and history. But I also thought it would be nice to think about how life was in 1823 for that for those group of very, very ordinary people who actually had the courage and the love of God to actually set up a new place of worship. And I say still really, you know, that word dissenter was still used quite a lot, dissenting, dissenter. That's how one of our ministers was described on the census, a dissenting minister, a retired dissenting minister. You know, there was still obviously some feeling there in the in the community about what that meant. And I know you went to archives, didn't you, in uh, uh, Wooden Hall. So that, that must be really interesting, cause I suppose, did we get the kind of gloves on and then the, a protocol for what you can and can't touch or... Yes, uh, it was interesting. I had been to the records office uh, before, but just looked at sort of family history stuff, and that was a long time ago. 
So things have moved on, I guess, since then, and the records are older. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, because we'd actually deposited those records all probably 50 or so years ago, even though there are records, we're not allowed to take them out. So it meant, um, yes, go and you get this cushion thing that you have to, there's a church book where all of this information is recorded about those first eight people and then seven people that join them and then subsequent members after that. And yes, you don't have to wear gloves, but you are sort of told to treat it very carefully. And it it was a little bit fragile, but what the really special thing was for me, and I had no idea of this when I'd made my appointment to go there and look at these records, start to look through these records. I opened the first page and it was headed up, you know, this is the church book of Kingsort Baptist Church. And it was dated the 30th of March, 1823. And I suddenly, I had to look at my phone to confirm that that day was the 30th of March 2023 and it's still giving me goosebumps now so to to actually look at those records and the people that signed some people obviously couldn't write out of those eight because there were a couple of crosses which as we know are marks of that person but to think that I was looking at a document that was so important and, and still is important because if it wasn't for them we wouldn't be here. And you've actually got the Jubilee booklet there from 1973, which has got a, a an interesting passage in it, Catherine. Yes, it it tells us that when the Great War broke out in 1914, the church took the responsibility of entertaining some Belgian refugees. It states that Mr A.J. Chown offered rent-free a house in Cecil Road and a large number of people gave weekly subscriptions for the support of the church's guests. And also, and I did pick this up in the church minute books, that in 1915, our minister at the time, Reverend Robinson, we actually gave permission for him to go and serve over in France from August to November. I think that was the length of his time um, under the YMCA. And then also connected to the Second World War, um, after that war had finished, when fraternisation was allowed, um, the minister of, of Kingsford Baptist at that time, the Reverend William Rees, formed links with the German prisoner of war camp that was at Bowton Park and he conducted weekly worship there and some prisoners also came to worship at Kingsthorpe and we have a picture of the prisoner of war um, accommodation in Bowton Park actually still in our church. Did you, in, in what you looked through, did you uh, either uncover any sort of church politics, uh, other other forms of dissent, or did it all seem to go smoothly, do you think, over time? I mean, it's a long time, I know, two, two centuries. Yeah, it would, um, a lot of the church minute books up to about 1950 are in the records office. Um, it, would, it would be lovely at some point to actually study them, at, at, you know, have that time, because obviously you're quite, if you just pop there for a couple of hours and you can't possibly photograph every page of, <laughs> of a minute book to, to go away and read it. But yeah, I mean, there were some things that, that popped up, continued to pop up, same sort of issues that we have now, you know, things with with the buildings, you know, does this need painting? Does that need repairing? Sort of the boring, practical things like that. Lots of social history, I guess, things of its time. Um, and I hesitate to say this because for a long period of time, and I'm, I think it was about 19... 40 something it is mentioned in the exhibition but I can't think of it we didn't have a female deacon until I think the 1940s so the deacons meetings that took place up until that time used to take place in 
people's houses and there were quite a lot of deacons on the diaconate at that time, a lot more than we have now, a lot more that we've had in recent times. And of course, tea was always served by the ladies, by the, the lady of, of the house. And that was minuted. Yeah, that, that it, and, and there were lots of things about, you know, talking to um, the ladies committee or the, the flower committee or the tea. There was lots of committees. There was lots of people that, that did things. But there seemed to be lots of people that did things, which was, was lovely to, to hear. In letters that I found, the, the, the one church secretary chose to keep lots all the copies of different um, correspondence. And there's, an, again, an interesting letter about a tea urn and uh, whether it worked long enough for the meeting or not. And I, I, how that was resolved, I don't know. But um, there was other things, like I think in the late 60s, um, the actual church safe was stolen. The church was broken into, sadly, and um, the church safe was, was stolen. And there was a letter reporting that to the police. Um, and then a couple of days later, and of course, the safe contained all the marriage records and the certificates and everything. So it was quite serious that all of that had gone missing. But fortunately, about three days later, there was another letter to the police saying that the safe had been found and the contents were still in there. So thankfully, and we still have those records today. So I, I knew nothing about that. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask you whether you you picked up on, whether you noticed the differences between being a Baptist now in 2023 as opposed to then, you know, 200 years ago. But I suppose fewer communications about tea urns now. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I, I think I think as life was, I think things were a lot stricter. Um, again, in the exhibition, I've got um, a copy of what was written as a declaration at that time in 1823 to become a member. And it's actually two, in ordinary type, it's two pages of A4 sided paper um, they also wrote a church covenant which we've we've actually got um, in the church but yes I think looking at it things were a lot stricter there was in the minute books there were members that it mentioned had been asked to leave temporarily it never really mentioned why um, so there was a bit of data protection going on there I don't know but uh, yeah, there was no reasons, but yeah, quite a few people or who would ask to stand down perhaps as a member for a little while. Perhaps they knew that they weren't going to be able to commit themselves to coming. I think actually coming to church was important. One of the things in, in the declaration was that, you know, you could not you could not choose to to vote or to have a say in what was going on in the church unless you were actively at the meetings and had actively been at church, whereas we tend to work a little bit differently to that now so so now you are uh, committing facts copies documents etc to i guess uh, banners posters things that you can uh, display so uh, when is it that people can come and see it and you know what can they expect to see then obviously what we talked about but you know how, how is it all kind of laid out yeah it's so the church will be open there's going to be tea and coffee free for everyone that comes but also there's going to be some history about what baptists are what our kind of specific beliefs are that will be as you as you come in and then within the church there'll be a display just on just on an ordinary display board of pictures and the different documents that I found and obviously copied and perhaps even typed out and laminated they'll be there to to see um also I'm going to put out the um marriage registers so that would be interesting probably for people to, if they've got family that you think were married here 
you'll be able to come and have a look at those. And normally they're they're all locked away. What else? I've I've compiled a folder of like order a special order of services, different information that I've just picked up from. There was quite a lot of records in our vestry here, so I've kind of put all that together and you know for someone to just sort of flick through and, and pick out different interesting things but as well as the church history there's also um, quite a lot of stuff on Kingsthorpe as it was then thinking about the group of people as I say that would have set the church up um, and a little bit about um, how Kingsthorpe has changed um, I've also pulled out some quite interesting buildings around, not pulled out, but <laughs> got pictures of, of quite interesting buildings that are in and around the village or, or Kingsorp as a whole, that perhaps you don't know what the history is. Um, and, you know, all of that, unless you research it, you don't know. There's not a sign on each building that says this once was whatever. So I think, you know, if you live in Kingsorp or have ever had anything to do with Kingsorp, I think it will be quite interesting. It's the Saturday the 24th of June. It's open, We're open from 10 o'clock in the morning till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Catherine Bruce was talking to me in the Baptist Church. You're listening to One Voice, which is on all of the key podcast apps and sites. And, you know, I'd recommend going back to some of our past episodes, our, our library or archive, because on there you'll find, and this is if you haven't done it already, Three years so far, three years we've covered with so much ground within that. So well worth a listen to some of our previous episodes. Now, without further ado, it's time to have some coffee time chat. Here's Pam. There's been major work at the Baldwin household. Carol tells the tale. I'm sure many of you have heard the tale of our random collection of fish that we inherited when we moved into our house 17 years ago. They assured us the pond was empty, but no, it had the most motley collection of assorted coloured fish you ever did see. We dutifully looked after these ugly, but beautiful in their own way, fish for many years and protected the pond with a frame so our grandchildren couldn't fall in. It seems we protected the fish from Mr Heron too, because when we decided the children all now taller than Carol, would be safe and remove the frame, Mr Heron consumed the fish in one fell swoop. As it happens, this did us a favour, as the back wall of the pond was in desperate need of repair, and so we embarked on a building project to replan the garden. We upset all the birds and the frogs, and probably some newts too, as we completely demolished the old pond and built a sitting area where it used to be. Horror of horrors, I hear you shout. All is not lost. We have installed a new, smaller pond and a cascade with no fish. The blackbirds are loving having a drink and a bath in the cascade. The smaller birds are quickly flying in and out again. I have the lovely sound of running water back and Mr Crow, who was very put out to lose his bath and even came to check on the new building arrangements during the build, has brought his wife and they are enjoying a bath in the pond again. I now have to learn the art of patience 
as I wait for the new planting arrangement to settle and grow. The other news is that I use the lovely, generous garden vouchers that you gave me last year when I retired from junior church to buy the plants with. I had been saving them as I knew we needed to sort out the pond, so they have been very well used now. Thank you. I have three words for you. King Charles Coronation. If you watched it, you'll probably know that the Reverend Helen Cameron had a role to play in it. And clearly a commitment of that stature meant rehearsals and absolutely impeccable timings. You'll be pleased to hear, I'm sure, that Helen is going to talk us through how it all worked and how our new king was affected by the ceremony. To begin, Helen talks about the rehearsals and who had to speak up if things weren't quite right. Well, that's a very good question. And um, when the invitation uh, came to uh, participate in the coronation, um, it came with an invitation to rehearse on the Wednesday, to rehearse on the Thursday, uh, to have Friday as a day off, and uh, then for the coronation Saturday. So when we got to the coronation, we had had four walkthroughs and one full dress rehearsal, one full sound uh, rehearsal for the choristers and the and the soloists, as well as voice, you know, sound level recordings for the BBC, for those of us who had speaking parts. So the presenter uh, for Westminster Abbey was in charge of running the rehearsals. And what was interesting were body doubles for the King and the Queen. We did no rehearsals um, with the King and the Queen until the day itself. And it did bring... It, it meant it was very organised and there was only um, in the in the Wednesday run-through when we were blocking moves, there was only one point at which it was worked out that the moment of anointing for that to fit to the music might, might need um, just like rearranging and a little bit more spaciousness, which, I mean, obviously I, I was then taking part and I, and I wasn't watching it live, but it gave everybody confidence that it had been worked through so thoroughly in order that people could relax and treasure the the emotion of the moment rather than worrying about what came next. Yes, I assume that with those rehearsals, if there had been prior commitment, I think I read that uh, uh, the president of conference, Graham, had got things that he thankfully had some flexibility that had to move around or be, or be postponed. Yeah. Uh, the, the rehearsals mandatory, I take it, you have to be at every single one. You do, technically. It's an interesting one. For the Queen's funeral, there was only one rehearsal, and that was for the BBC. I couldn't attend it, so you are allowed to send a double, mm. as it were, somebody to be in your space. But it must be the same person for each rehearsal. So I'd had a lot more notice that, than others because of the speaking part, and therefore I'd had my information a lot longer. And it came from the palace with clear instructions about the rehearsals and the times. We just had to work um, and people were gracious. And I was very glad of people's graciousness that they understood that a rehearsal for the coronation was something that was non-negotiable largely. You were there as moderator of the Free Churches group, but you were part, weren't you, of this broad ecumenical landscape. What was the significance of that? Oh, clearly, Helen, I know you weren't at the Queen's coronation, but the late Queen's coronation, but there was departure here, wasn't there? There was sort of a shift. Huge departure, John, and I think transformation. 
So the, the narrative is that in 1953, Cardinal Vincent's predecessor, the Roman Catholic leader of all Roman Catholics in, in, in the UK, stood outside the Abbey and was not invited in. And what has happened since 1953 is that churches have moved close together, speak to each other. There is full recognition that the coronation services are is a Church of England liturgy, but the generosity shown by the Archbishop um, on working with the liturgy. So the blessing, for example, that I took part in was uh, specially commissioned by Archbishop Justin to include as many of the other Christian traditions as could be there. So not only was Cardinal Vincent, my Roman Catholic uh, fellow president of Churches Together in England, in the cathedral this time, he was actually uh, there um, at Archbishop Justin and, uh, and Archbishop Stephen's shoulders as the blessing was said. And um, I did describe that blessing of the newly crowned king as being like an ecumenical embrace because there was an Orthodox voice and a Pentecostal voice and a Roman Catholic voice and a free church voice. And it was really rather wonderful. Mm. And if we take that a step further, the procession in of the interfaith guests was very important. I've been at other services where uh, they were part of a pre-procession or they were seated before the service began. And actually they, you know, they gathered, gathered with us in, in the robing chamber and um, it was delightful. And this, the presentation of the symbols by a Sikh and a Muslim and, and a, a Jewish woman and a Hindu was mm. just breathtaking. And then the greeting at the end, um, when they stood at the door and offered, you know, neighbourly um, greetings. It is hard to underestimate. It wasn't tokenism. It was genuine change and progression and development that reflected modern society and the changes that have taken place since 1953 in our understanding of what it means to be British. Very apt, I think, that you refer to churches moving together because I noted on the Churches Together website that it says, you and obviously peers, etc., colleagues, you all shared stories, it said, throughout the rehearsals, encouragement and cough sweets. We did. And I, um, you know, I have these very vivid memories of, of, of helping uh, one or two of my ecumenical colleagues to, uh, to get uh, to put their copes on and make sure that their robes were straight. And, and uh, there was a wonderful um, Muslim woman representing interfaith body she was helping hugely checking that people were straight, you know, with their robes and things. There was a very warm engagement of people. And because that same group had been together at the late Queen's funeral and indeed at her plat Platinum Jubilee service at St Paul's, there has been a, a development of friendship. And we did that week, we did actually spend quite a lot of time together. Um, and that's good and helpful. And yes, the costumes were on offer. I needed one, so... Yeah. So, so we we now we've ascertained which lozenges get the royal seal, if you like, the royal warrant. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, I suppose it's it's uh, an obvious thing to say, but th those watching the coronation on television would feel this sense of of national unity. Those sorts of events events don't come a along very often. But what was the overriding feeling like for you actually in there? I, I was more moved than I thought I might be. I, I knew the Queen's funeral would be immensely moving. But did I know, and obviously we go to funerals of all kinds of people, um, as well as important people, uh, but I've never been to a coronation and don't expect to be at another. And therefore, I noticed when I look back at the footage, as I came into the abbey in procession, my head was down. 
And I was absolutely overwhelmed mm. by by a full abbey. The music beforehand was just, you knew you were walking into something. It was a piece of history. It was something in the nation's life. And um, I found it remarkably moving. The quality of the music once we were in, I had shivers down my spine on not just Zadok the priest, but the quality of the singing and the soloists of the choir uh, beforehand while we're waiting for the arrival of the um, of the king and queen to be physically present when the music is that good. It was in my head for a long time. I, I dreamt, I dreamt of coronations for nights afterwards. I have to say. Anxiety dream just because it had entered my subconscious. Something. Yes, yes, it has sort of suffused all of the, uh, as you say, that sort of feeling of of occasion and performance. And one of your peers, I noticed, um, said that you you could see in the king's eyes just how much the words meant to him. So I, I assume that registered with you as well. Oh, yes. I mean, it was really, it was an extraordinarily tender moment because we were inches from him mm -hmm. and we were there and came out just after the crown had been placed on his head and he was both solemn moved he caught up in the moment there was nothing contrary about any of this and this part of the service of of this diverse group of people blessing a newly crowned king was a remarkable moment and he was immensely moved by it what effect do you think that the coronation has on interfaith harmony, shall we say, can that endure uh, after the event, months, years, etc., decades? I think it can, and I think it can be built on. It was really wonderful to greet the chief rabbi as he walked in from St. James's Palace um, because it was Shabbat, and he, he, you know, he could have said, I'm not going to be in a Christian church on, on, on the Sabbath, and he was, he was not just there but took part in the, in the greeting. Um, as the king and queen left the um, the abbey, uh, there was something that can reflected good quality relationships that do exist, but actually promise promise even greater things. And some of the build up moments to the coronation, where we launched the the big lunch, for example, in the cloisters, um, you know, just to have people of other faiths as well as other Christian denominations sitting down eating together and talking about what we have in common was extraordinary. Uh, it was extraordinary, and uh, it, gave me, it gave me some hope. The Reverend Helen Cameron. Thanks to Helen, to Catherine Bruce, and Pam Kirkland. And next time, it's a special with the soon-departing Reverend Francis Itiri. Until next time, goodbye. Stories, community, and what brings us together.